Okay, we are in uh, the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we are in chapter 13, just finishing up chapter 13. And we're going to start reading Acts chapter 13 from verse 48. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In verse 48, it says at the end of it, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. What, what exactly is going on here? Do, do people really have a free will in this whole thing? Have you ever thought about that? And if people are going to go to hell, if they didn't have a free will, is that really fair to send them to hell? If you've never thought about it, you probably will at some point, maybe even starting today. But, but I've thought about that a lot. And one of the verses that, that actually lends some comfort to me and some understanding here, did we cover this last week? I don't think we did. Okay. One of, one of the verses that helps me out here is in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, reading from verse, verse uh, 29, Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so the the first part of it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For God to be God, he has to know what people's ultimate decision is going to be that doesn't in some way control their decision. He just knows what the decision is going to be. He's not controlling the decision, per se. And so, for God to be God, He knows. He knows everything that has taken place, that is taking place, that will take place. Because remember, God lives outside of time. And so when we live in this time dimension, which is to us a very important thing in our lives. That's why we have lives. But God lives outside of this. So he sees everything, all, simultaneously. This is who God is. So he foreknows. But those whom he foreknows, he also predestines. So he foreknows who is going to make what decisions. And to those who are going to make the decisions to follow him, he predestines with certain things for the future. Do you see what I mean? I don't know if that helps you much, but that that verse has helped me. You think about that a little bit. That's a good portion to think about this. So that when we see in verse 48, it says, those who had been appointed to eternal life believed. And then it says, and the word of God kept spreading, but the Jews 
incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution. So there were devout women. That means these were, when it says devout women, it's talking about the devotion that they had to the God of Israel. So either these were Jewish women or these were Gentile women who followed the Jewish practices. They got stirred up. And some of the, the, the leading men in the city got stirred up. And it says they drove Paul and Barnabas out of the city. And it says Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, they did exactly as they were instructed by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus said, When you are rejected in a city... Shake in a certain house to shake off the dust from your feet and move on. And this to us seems like, oh, this is, this is sort, of a, 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 you know, sort of like sticking their tongue out at them. It is not at all. This means I just want you to continue on. In other words, you shake the dust off from your feet, meaning that you learn how to get up and move on. When you are rejected for your faith, you need to learn how to get up and move on. When I am uh, uh, rejected because of my colleagues for certain things I may believe, it is very easy for me to start thinking about this and feeling sorry for myself, feeling sorry for, for who I am and, and what I believe and that why aren't people realizing how nice I'm trying to be to them because I'm not naturally nice, but I'm really trying to be nice because Jesus is in me. And, and uh, don't they realize this and don't they appreciate all the things that I'm trying to do? And so it's really easy for me to sit back and have a pity party and start sucking my thumb. And the Bible says, get up, shake the dust off your feet, move on. This is very important for the believer to be able to do. And we're going to see this again and again this morning in what we're teaching. To be able to move on in the Holy Spirit. To be able to move on with what God has for us. We must be able to shake the dust off our feet. And it says in verse 52, And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So you see, their attitude was not bitterness and spitting because they were rejected. Their attitude was actually very much filled with joy. Okay, well, we're moving on. And the joy came. And the joy is very different. And we're going to see this pattern of those who come against them are filled with this bitter hatred yet they are continually filled with joy. The other thing we're going to see is, these men are persecuted again and again, and yet they're filled with joy. How can this be? Okay, look in in chapter 14. And so it says that they, in verse 51, it it said they moved on from, from Antioch to Iconium. And it says in verse 14, in chapter 14, verse 1, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of the people believed, both of Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and bittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with a reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders would be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. And some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews, with their rulers, to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, specifically Lystra and Derbe, and the surrounding region. 
And there they continued to preach the gospel. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul and Barnabas had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? And, and are also, aren't also the, we men just as you are of the same nature and preach the gospel to you? And you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave them without a witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowd from the sacrifices being made to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around, they got up and entered the city. He got up and entered the city, and the next day he went with Paul, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue on in the faith. Okay, so we read a lot, but look at the pattern now of what's happening. They go into Iconium, they had just been rejected from this city. And they move on from Antioch. They go into Iconium. And it says in, verse, in chapter 14, verse 1, a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. So again, they went into the city. They spoke to a large number of people. They went first into the synagogue. This was their repeated pattern. They had been rejected out of the synagogue in Antioch. But yet they go to Iconium. They bring the gospel to the Jew first. That was the normal pattern they followed. They went into this synagogue and the Jews believed and the converts to Judaism, meaning the Gentiles that were Jews, started believing as well. But the ones who disbelieved stirred up all this ruckus against them, yet they continued to boldly speak in the Lord. And there was a division. But now in verse 5 it says, An attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to mistreat and to stone them. So they had planned to mistreat them and to kill them. So a stoning isn't like they take a little rock and they throw it at their back. No, a stoning was they would all get around with big stones, and in that part of the world, you find a lot of stones. I think it would be really hard to stone somebody to death in Houston. You just can't find rocks around here. But in that part of the world, there's no lack of, uh, of stones. And they, they find these stones, and they start surrounding the people, and they throw it at them, and they kill them. So this isn't a very warm welcome. Things aren't going very well here. They were just driven out of the last city. And now they're being driven out of this city and they have to flee for their lives. And remember, this is their first missionary journey. Not everything is going very well. Yeah, people believe, but are they kind of breaking the law? Because the ruling authorities are coming against them. 
And, you know, we Christians should never break the law, right? We should never do that. You know, if we're breaking the law, it must be wrong. Remember, in the Scriptures, there are examples of civil disobedience. For the preservation of human life, for the immediate preservation of human life, it says that, that the, the midwives in Israel saved the lives of the Jewish children, the Jewish male tr- children. They did not throw the males into, the, into the, the Nile River as Pharaoh had instructed them to. And God blessed the midwives and blessed their families as a result. Accepting the Lord is an example of civil disobedience for Christians that is condoned in the Scriptures. And preaching the Gospel is an example of civil disobedience which is condoned in the Scriptures. Far beyond that, you'd be hard-pressed to walk in civil disobedience. But for the preservation of human life, for preaching the Gospel and accepting the Gospel, we are, in fact, instructed throughout the Scriptures to follow God in this, regardless of what the governing authorities say. You know, I know many people would like to say, and uh, we shouldn't pay taxes either. That's not the case at all. The Scriptures, in fact, tell us to pay taxes to whom taxes are due. And you may not like the taxes. It doesn't say you have to enjoy paying the taxes. And you just wait till you get out of school and you find out this guy, Mr. FICA, and how much he takes from your paycheck each month. And, and, and you, might, you might not enjoy it, but you just have to do it. But here is this example where the community is coming against them and they have to flee. So they go to Lystra and, and uh, um, they proclaim healing over a man. And now it says in verse 11, after they heal this man, the people in, in the Lycaonian language start saying, the gods have become like men and come down to us. So Paul and Barnabas did not understand at first what was going on. They didn't speak this language. So they were obviously preaching to them in a language that those people understood or through an interpreter. But they didn't know immediately what was happening. And so in extra-biblical writings, it talks about what happened in Lystra. Actually, in Lystra, there was, there was a legend in Lystra at the time that formerly in Lystra, gods had appeared uh, uh, to them, specifically uh, um, uh, Zeus and... and uh, um, because it, it says that, that um, uh, they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. So specifically, Zeus and Hermes had come down previously to that city. This was a legend. And nobody had received them except one old couple. And retribution then came on that city. Everybody died except that old couple. And that old couple were made the priest and priestess of the temple. So that city had this legend. So when these men start preaching and there's a healing take place, all of a sudden they think that they've come back again. Far be it from us to reject them. So they start bringing out sacrifices to these people. And Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on at first. And then it's, uh, and so they start calling uh, uh, Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So we know that Paul was main, the main speaker in this, in this duet of, of, uh, uh, of missionaries that had gone out. And it says that the priest, uh, of, of Zeus, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices. But in verse 14, but when the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out of the crowd, right? Rushed out into the crowd. So 
finally they figured out what was going on. There's all this commotion and all these things coming. They don't know exactly what's happening. And so now there's this idol worship that they're about to perform for Paul and Barnabas. You talk about really messing up here. Think about it. They had come out to preach Jesus Christ and they got these people rejoicing in, 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 uh, in their own foreign gods. And having these big sacrifices. And even the temple from this foreign god is coming out and getting all involved. And everybody's excited. This is not the pattern of what they had in mind when they came to preach the gospel. And when they figured it out, it says, with, with much difficulty they restrained the crowd. It was difficult for them to get control of this crowd because everything was going wrong here. And it says that that they preach, and then Paul started saying, in verse 17, he did not leave himself without a witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You know, it, it, is, it is said that uh, uh, Zeus would, would, would bring rain and Hermes would bring food. That's what those gods were doing. And so he says, no, this is not those gods, this is the God from heaven that we're preaching. It's not these gods that you think. You're getting this totally wrong. I don't know if you've ever tried to do something good and it's turned out to mix up everything and make it bad. Has that ever happened to you? This happens to me all the time. You know, I, I try to say something good to a person and they take it all wrong. And I'm, I'm just saying, no, 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 you don't understand here. This is what happened to them, but in a huge way. And then what happens is, then the whole thing just turns around again. In verse, in, in, in verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowds, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. I mean, what a switch here. First they're about to worship him, and then Jews come from Antioch and Iconium. They come 90 miles. Do you see that this is an organized attack on Paul and Barnabas? You think there, there, there are organized groups today that come against believers and against Christians? There are. But this is nothing new. These were organized groups that decided to go 90 miles. That's like a week's journey for them. This is like you flying to Israel, but much more difficult. To go and deal with some certain people that you don't like. This is a very organized attack. So they come from the two cities that they had preached in previously, from Antioch and Iconium, and they stir up these crowds and they say, oh yeah, well, you want them stoned? We can take care of that. They got away from you in the last city? They won't get away from us here. And they surround and they start throwing stones at Paul so much that they think he's dead. And they drag him out of the city supposing him to be dead. And we can't say that he was dead because it says they supposed him to be dead. And if he was dead, Luke, who wrote this, who was a physician, would have said, and he was dead. But they supposed him to be dead. But nonetheless, it's a miraculous healing. In the very least, it's not a resurrection, but it's at least a miraculous healing. Paul sits up and says, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. I mean, can you imagine that heart? I mean, if somebody says one little thing bad to me, my feelings are hurt. And I want to go away and, you know, go home and have Shireen put her arm around me and say, it's okay, you're really very nice. <laughs> but this guy gets stones thrown at him so much, he appears as if he's dead. Just blood coming out of everywhere. And he, 
He says, and he, and he sits up and he says something like this. In verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I mean, the simplicity of this whole thing. And then what does he do? It says, and when, when, it, when he had done this, he went right back into the cities and he started preaching. So from there they went to Derby in verse 20, and then they went right back into Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, the three cities where the people had gathered together in, in Lystra to, to kill him. He went right back into those cities, and he went into those cities, maybe not speaking big, broadly, and publicly, it says he went in those cities in verse 22 to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue on in the faith. So he went to the churches that had formed, encouraging them to continue on in the faith. And then it says, it says uh, uh, in verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for, every, for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, when they went back, they visited the churches that had founded, that had started, and they appointed elders. Elders were appointed in the churches. And what we see is the leadership of the churches was leaving the, the apostolic group. And there was local, in each city, in each church, there was local authority. They were appointing elders. Elders weren't elected. They were appointed. It wasn't people saying, let's, let's have a vote. Who's it? No. The apostles appointed elders. And the elders were appointed not just because they said, hey, he's a good-looking, handsome guy. Let's make him the elder. No. Elders were appointed, it says, by prayer and fasting. So in verse 23, and they appointed elders in every church having prayed with fasting. Elders are appointed through prayer and fasting. The things that we have most difficulty with, prayer and fasting, is the method by which elders are appointed. Deacons were appointed by election. We had seen earlier in the book of Acts that, that, that uh, uh, the apostles had gotten, Stephen was one of them, and they said, you know, just make sure that they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they've got wisdom and stuff like that. But then you go ahead and appoint them. And then we'll pray over them. But as far as the, the core leadership, it came with prayer and fasting. That is the order that we see in the appointment of the local church. But the thing that I want to follow on is this thought. How could a man, how could men who had been so abused in cities like this, walk back into those cities and start preaching? Remember who we are. Just think of it. This is not just me. This happens to you too. Somebody says something to you that's offensive. You're, getting, you're gaining a lot of weight, aren't you? How dare they say that? You know, one little thing, and we get all upset. This is, this is how we are. We're really these complex individuals. I love being a parent of very little children, because it's so simple. Any problem they have, I just pick them up and tickle them, and it's all better. And then all of a sudden, they hit adolescence, and there's this complexity that anything I try, it doesn't work. In fact, it makes matters worse. And so... We are really complex individuals. One little thing that we don't like, and we get in this little hissy fit. And these men are preaching the gospel. They get stones thrown at them. They get organized attacks. And how could they go in and go back to these cities and preach? And then, on their second missionary journey, they come right back through these cities preaching. How can they do it? I picked up this book because I was speaking to a man who was a 
Romanian Jewish believer. So he was a Jew who believed Jesus was the Messiah. He had grown up in Romania. And now he lives in Israel. But he had mentioned this book, Tortured for Christ. I said, oh, I've heard of this. He says, that's the group that I'm from. And so I said, well, I really need to read it. And I went downstairs, and sure enough, on my bookshelf was this book. Somebody had given it to me. Lots of people give me books, and, and I don't read them all because I just don't have time. But sure enough, it was there. And I started reading, and I started getting angry for these people. How could they take the abuse they took and still have the heart they had? So I want to read you this so you can, you can share this anger with me and, 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 and see what it was like. And this guy says in this book, I'm not going to talk about the torture. I've written another book. I just want to talk about the move of God's Spirit. So he just has one little section on the torture, just to give you a taste of it. But he says, I can't recount. It's too painful for me. And if you really want to know, go to such and such a book. This man was 14 years imprisoned in Romania as a a Christian for his faith. And he he had been a pastor. And And he gives different examples with exact names. He says, a pastor by the name of Florescu was tortured with red-hot iron pokers and with knives. He was beaten very badly. Then starving rats were driven into his cell through a large pipe. He could not sleep because he had to defend himself all the time. If he rested a moment, the rats would attack him. He was forced to stand for two weeks, day and night. The communists wished to compel him to betray his brethren, but he resisted steadfastly. Eventually, they brought his 14-year-old son into the prison and began to whip the boy in front of his father, saying that they would continue to beat him until the pastor said what they had wished him to say. The poor man was half mad. He bored as long as he could. Then he cried to his son, Alexander, I must say what they want. I cannot bear your beating anymore. The son answered, Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent. Withstand, if they kill me, I will die with the words, Jesus and my fatherland. The communists, enraged, fell upon the child and beat him to death with blood spattered all over the walls in the cell, of the cell. He died praising God. Our dear brother Florescu was never the same after seeing this. I mean, think about this. Handcuffs with sharp nails on the inside were placed on our wrists. If we were totally still, they didn't cut us. But in the bitter cold cells, we shook with cold and our wrists would be torn by the nails. He goes on in another passage. I testified before the Internal Security Subcommittee of the U.S. Senate. There described the awful things, such as Christians tied to a cross for four days and nights. The crosses were placed on the floor and hundreds of prisoners had to fulfill their bodily necessities over the faces and bodies of the crucified ones. Then the crosses were erected again and the communists jeered and mocked. Look at your Christ, how beautiful he is. What fragrance he brings from heaven. I described how, after being driven nearly insane with tortures, a priest was forced to consecrate human excrement and urine and give holy communion to Christians in this form. This happened in the Romanian prison of Petestai. I asked the priest afterward why he did not prefer to die rather than to participate in this mockery. He answered, don't judge me, please. I have suffered more than Christ. All the biblical descriptions of hell and the pains of Dante's Inferno are nothing compared to the tortures in the communist prisons. I'm skipping down again. Another one of our workers in the underground church was a young girl. The communist police discovered that she secretly spread gospels and taught children about Christ. They decided to arrest her, but to make the arrest as agonizing and painful as they could, they decided to delay her arrest and and uh, uh, they decided to delay her arrest. And on her wedding day, the girl was dressed as a bride. And the most wonderful, joyous day in the girl's life. Suddenly, the door burst open and the secret police rushed in. When the bride saw the secret police, she held out her arms toward them to be handcuffed. They roughly put manacles on her hands. 
She looked toward her beloved, then kissed the chains and said, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel he has presented to me on my marriage day. I thank him that I am worthy to suffer for him. She was dragged off with weeping Christians and weeping bridegroom left behind. They knew what happened to young Christian girls in the hands of the communist guards. Her bridegroom faithfully waited for her. After five years, she was released, a destroyed, broken woman looking 30 years older. She said it was the least she could do for her Christ. Such beautiful Christians are in the underground church. And, you know, you read a few pages like this and you say, God, where are you? How could these people feel like this? You know, are they angry and bitter? And then, and then read some of the, let me read some of the passages of the things he would say of the believer's hearts in the prison. When one Christian was sentenced to death, he was allowed to see his wife before being executed. His last words to his wife were, You must know that I die loving those who kill me. They don't know what they do, and my last request of you is to love them too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they killed your beloved one, and we will meet in heaven. These words impressed the officer of the secret police who attended the discussion between them. He later told me the story in prison where he had been sent for becoming a Christian. So that officer who heard this became a Christian and was sent to prison and told this to this guy, Wormbrand. And, and uh, numerous, numer- numerous stories like this. Now look again at, at the heart of these people and, and, and how they spoke about this, how they spoke about the things that happened in their own hearts during this, these events. I've seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains on their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers, in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being kept afterward without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, praying with fervor for the communists. This is humanly inexplicable. It is the love of Christ which is poured out in our hearts. Later, the communists who had tortured us were sent to prison too. Under communism, communists and even communist rulers are put in prison almost as often as their adversaries. Now the tortured and the torturer were in the same cell. And while non-Christians showed hatred toward their former inquisitors and beat them, Christians took their defense even at the risk of being beaten themselves, beaten themselves and accused of being accomplices with the communists. I've seen Christians give away their last slice of bread. We were given one slice a week and the medicine that could save our lives to a sick communist torturer who was now a fellow prisoner. These are the last words of Iliuai Maniu, a Christian and the former prime minister of Romania who died in prison. He said, if communists are overthrown in our country, it will be the most holy duty of every Christian to go into the streets and at the risk of their own life defend the communists from the righteous fury of the multitudes who they have tyrannized. A minister who had been horribly beaten was thrown into my cell. He was half dead with blood streaming from his face and body. We washed him. Some prisoners cursed the communists. Groaning, he said, please do not curse them. Keep silent. I wish to pray for them. When, When I look back on my 14 years in prison, it was occasionally a very happy time. Other prisoners and even the guards often wondered at how happy Christians could be under the most terrible circumstances. We could not be prevented from singing, although we were beaten for singing. I imagined the nightingales, too, would sing even if they knew that after they finished they would be killed. Christians in prison danced for joy. 
How could they be so happy under tragic conditions? You know, you hear things like this and you say, how can people do that? I'm telling you, this is the love of Christ. It is absolutely inexplicable to have this, this sort of attitude without Jesus. This is where no other religion can hold a candle to Christianity in the way it moves upon man, where God fills a life and says, you are going to become Christ-like. You are going to become Christ-like. I read this, I thought, how could these men go back into these cities? I mean, I'd want to go back like Rambo. I'd want to go back and start taking out these guys. But God comes upon a heart. You see, God is very different than us. And this is what He instills upon the human heart. This is the beautiful thing that we have in Christ. This treasure that He comes in and He changes the heart. And you see these men and the abuse they went through, they just, Jesus told us, shake the dust off and let's go on. And they went on with joy. They moved on with joy. This is the place He wants to bring us. There is nothing magical about these people. I truly believe that many of, the, many of you, if you were thrown into a prison situation like that, that the Holy Spirit would so fill your heart that you would rise up with the same attitude that they had. That you would love those who persecute you. Because Jesus said, bless those who persecute you, pray for those who mistreat you. These words would become resounding back to you. This man said he had been so indoctrinated, they would just just play these things over and over, forget them in, in the prison, that he couldn't even remember the Bible, he had forgotten how to read, he couldn't remember verses, but every once in a while, some verse would come back and just totally strengthen him. He said during the beatings, it would just be like he would pray, he would just say the words, Jesus. And then there was this total peace, as if he hardly felt the beating at all. God fills and God changes the heart. This is what's happening in these men's lives. For him to sit up after being stoned and to say, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. This is the heart of what God fills us with. This heart doesn't become apparent to us in all situations. But there are desperate situations where you will find yourself crying out to God and He will so fill, so fill you. There are situations where you will feel utterly betrayed and the world would want to grab a gun and start killing people. And God would so fill your heart with something different. This is the beautiful thing that we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. For the power of your word in the lives of these apostles. For the power of your word in the lives of these tortured Christians. Father, I thank you because you fill us with a different heart. It's totally inexplicable. Father, I pray for these young people that you would so teach them of yourself. You would so fill them with the treasure of Jesus and the love of Christ that they would be moved because of the love of Christ. And when rejection comes because of their faith, that they would press on. Father, I pray that you give them hearts to walk according to your way and to be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you keep them from bitter, bitterness and the traits of the world and you so fill them with joy and with the Holy Spirit in the face of attack.
Father, I pray for your grace to abound upon them. Your grace to abound. Father, so fill them, I pray. And I commit this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.